This talk is based on my shoe on Rosh Hashanah. I've made some updates to the conversations I had around it, but uh, but basically that's where it comes from. So I've written and spoken on occasion about what I consider the great challenge of the Chumash, the five books of Moses. God's role is cast in a way that is almost impossible to understand. There is a fundamental divide between the divine and the human perspectives, and the Torah doesn't do anything to hide it. For me, the most personal expression of this divide is also quite a subtle one. Avraham was, or Avram at the time, was one of Terach's three sons. I think they were triplets, given that they are described as being born the same year. One was named after the past, Av means father. One was named after the present, Nahor means sneeze. And the third was Haran, named after education, or the future. The kids were named after the past, the present, and the future. Then Haran died, and a few verses later, Terach, their father, left his homeland of Orkazdim, called Chaldi in English. And the name of this place, Orkazdim, literally means the destroyers of light. So years later, <clears throat> after Avraham has just fought the war with the four kings, God promises Avram that he will have many descendants. Avram believes God and is credited with righteousness. Then God says something striking. He says, I brought you out of Urkazim to this land to inherit it. Avraham doesn't simply believe this. Instead, he says, how can I know? There are many possible reasons for this response. One that touches modern issues very closely is that Avraham didn't want to dispossess the people already in the land. We know from the war that Avraham had a treaty with those people. Another possible reason is that Avraham thought he had brought himself from ur or at least that his father had brought them out. He doesn't credit God with bringing them out. A third answer, the answer I want to focus on today, is for me the most difficult one. In 1975, my oldest brother died in an accident in the Idaho wilderness. He had just turned seven. That same day, my parents left their home of eight years, a home they had built nail by nail and board by board. They had built the hydroelectric system. They had hacked a life out of an incredibly inhospitable place. And in a moment, they abandoned it. When I read this verse, this is what I recalled. My parents left when their eldest son died. Perhaps Terach left or Kazdim for the same reason. Perhaps God, who is, after all, in control of everything, had taken Haran and driven Terach and his family from or Kazdim, from the place where light is destroyed. Imagine being in Avram's shoes. Imagine that God, with whom you have a direct relationship, had just implied that he had taken your beloved brother in order to make your family move. Your trust would, the very least, waver. God's response is to double down. He promises Avram's descendants will be driven into slavery and then subjected to genocidal attacks. Afterwards, they will be redeemed and brought out to their land. In the future, there will be no question that God brought the people out of a place of darkness. But God will do it through darkness. He won't just magically transport the people to freedom. Instead, millions will die. When the time comes to the first iteration of that reality, there's no country mentioned, I believe, that it's speaking about Germany just as much as it's speaking about Egypt. Moshe resists God's vision. He consistently and constantly resists. He can't accept this vision. 
Torah doesn't hide this. It also doesn't diminish Moshe for his perspective. Aaron does whatever God wants. He opts to it. But Aaron isn't chosen by God. Moshe is. Moshe, the one who can't just agree with God, is the chosen one. In fact, this conflict of outlooks permeates the entire Chumash, the five books of Moses. In Parshat Vayikra, in the beginning of Leviticus, the sacrifices are described from the perspective of the layman. In the entire reading, only one sacrifice is called holy, the sacrifice of flour that is eaten by the priests. Everything else involves destruction, animals slaughtered and burned in their entirety, even flour burned up into nothing. From the every man's perspective, this isn't holy. And for those who like to point to animal sacrifice in other nations, it often wasn't holy for them too. They ate, as far as I know, the meat that they sacrificed. It was like a barbecue. But we burned it up into nothing. In the next reading, which comes from the priest's perspective, almost all of these sacrifices are holy or holy of holies. These animals are somehow converted from physical reality to spiritual reality. Something greater is made. There is no loss and no destruction. Just the release of holiness. The every man in his reading can't see this. But there is more than one perspective. And rather than ignoring the idea that there is more than one perspective, the Torah embraces it. There is this divine perspective, this divine reality, the divine reality in which people, even people, can be sacrificed for spiritual ends. Haran dies in Orgazdim. The result is the first family that moves between cultures and a couple, Avram and Sarai, who have the most influential marriage in the history of humankind. Haran would have died at some point, thousands of years in our past. And we can see the spiritual payoff. But we can also understand how Avram would have struggled with it, how he could never truly accept it. We can accept and celebrate the exodus from Egypt. Yes, huge numbers of Jewish children were killed. Huge numbers of Egyptians died. Nonetheless, we see and celebrate the result. The positive and the spiritual survives while the pain of those who are lost disappears. In a way, it reflects the divine maxim that kindness is preserved for thousands of generations while hate vanishes in three or four. The Akedah, the sacrifice of Isaac, brings it all even to even sharper perspective. Hashem commands Avraham to sacrifice his son. Avraham cannot understand, and yet he performs the commandment. He accepts the divine perspective even though he cannot embrace it. This is the fear of God. One of the members of my community was reflecting on the talk and again and again described it as the divine reality is a fundamentally irrational reality. But I don't agree with that assessment. It isn't irrational. It is just hard to internalize. My understanding of the divine perspective is this. God created mankind so he could have a relationship with us. But we needed to be fundamentally different for there to be a relationship. There needed to be some sort of core distance between us, and death provides that distance 
death and sin. As is stated before we leave the Garden of Eden, if we were to eat from the tree of life, we would become like God, and that would defeat the purpose of our creation. We need sin, we need death, we need fear, so that we can be different than God. We must be different than God. But then, in order to serve our purpose, we have to try and bridge that distance. Not by truly internalizing the understanding or understanding the divine perspective. If that were the case, Aaron would have been chosen and not Moshe. No, we bridge the difference by deferring to God even as we fail to understand the grand vision that we can never share with him. We build a relationship with God, a relationship in which we walk in the path of God as creators who ultimately connect with the timeless, but a relationship in which we are not like God and do not see the world as he does. Only our priests, the Kohanim, take on that perspective. Like the first of the number, Aaron, they adopt the divine perspective. But that is not the place for the rest of us. We fear God. We accept that there is a greater vision. We can even describe it. We cannot feel it. Cannot internalize it. As my mother used to say, I can understand the music. I can analyze the music. But I cannot feel the music. There are so many of these convert the physical reality to spiritual commandments that we no longer observe or we take something and we seem to destroy it in order to make something spiritual. We don't offer sacrifices. We don't practice the art of ritual purity. We don't follow a wide variety of the symbolic restrictions on other activities. We don't subsume the natural to the divine. But there are some of these commandments we still embrace. We can still choose to live without interest. We can ignore the opportunity to share real-world risks and instead simply pretend that they do not exist. And this year, we can practice Shemitah, the sabbatical year. Many argue Shemitah is just crop rotation. We let the land lay fallow to let it recuperate. If this were so, we'd rotate our plots of land and keep six out of seven in operation in any particular year. At the least, we'd be saving rain for six years to cover the seventh. But we don't. We expect the sixth year, which ought to be the least productive due to nitrogen depletion, to cover two years' worth of needs. It doesn't make any sense. We can't understand it. We are sacrificing critical economic opportunities in exchange for some sort of spiritual connection. But in return, God offers us blessings. He promises us excess grain. He promises shortly afterwards that we will eat very old grain, but keep on planting. We will be godlike, creating even though we lack nothing. We can't understand it. It makes no sense. And yet, if we have the fear of God, we will embrace it. We will understand that our perspective is not his or hers, if you prefer. And nonetheless, we will embrace that alien perspective. I have a very hard time with Shemitah, but I can understand that how, how it demonstrates the fear of God. I can understand that if we keep it, the world will be able to appreciate and see the divine through our example. As I record this, we are in the middle of the Aseret Yimei the 10 days of repentance. 
They span from the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, where we have the opportunity to hear the echo of the voice of God, to the holiday of Yom Kippur, where we seek atonement for our sins. The centerpiece of the Yom Kippur service in ancient times beautifully illustrates the opportunity of the divine relationship. And it demonstrates in a way just a slice of that divine perspective. The centerpiece is the ritual of Azazel, called the scapegoat in many English translations. Famously, there are two goats. One goat is sacrificed, the second is loaded with the sins of the people and shoved off a cliff in the wilderness. Growing up, we had goats. Goats are mischievous and rambunctious. There's something else, though. Growing up, we used to practice Azazel in a way, the ritual. But we never had the heart to actually hurt the goats. We loved them. Instead, we drove them away. And one time, we actually drove a goat something like 20 miles away. But the goats always came back. Goats are loyal, just like the Jewish people. Ultimately, they stay connected to their Jewish identity and to God, despite everything. Anyway, there are two goats. One goat is sacrificed to yud ke vav the name of the God that embraces the past, present, and future. The second is thrown over that cliff and dedicated to Az-Azel. The name Az-Azel literally means goat of disappearance. For me, the lesson is clear. We all die, but we can become a part of forever, the yud ke vav or like our sins, we can be a part of for never. We can be a part of eternity, or it can be as if we never existed. Being a part of forever requires building a relationship with God, not through belief, but through action, even, especially, through reluctant action, just as was shown through the examples of Avram and Moshe. I'm dedicating this talk to a woman who passed away recently. She died on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Her name was Betya Heen Hilton. She was 64. She was an emergency room nurse who also volunteered at her church to support the homeless and the poor. Her brother, with whom I worked, described her beautifully. Quote, she lived as a humble, caring person who never met a stranger and was willing to meet people where they were in life and work to assist them in getting better. She never met a stranger. She could relate to everyone. But she didn't simply embrace them as they were. She didn't simply adopt their perspective. Instead, she understood that there was a path greater than the one they were on. There was some shadow of a divine path, and she dedicated herself to helping others find it. I never knew Betya Heen Hilton. But as I prepare for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, I can imagine her soul is one of those which has become a part of forever. May she rest with the Divine, and may her deeds and her example ripple through our lives. May her kindness be preserved for thousands of generations. Shabbat Shalom and Shana Tovah.